I think in the near future, it's going to be possible to build billion dollar companies as an individual, a solo founder unicorn, basically. That's a little crazy, but I guess if yeah. you think of the LLVMs as like just interns, I mean, if you're good at getting interns to do things, then maybe. Yeah, that's the hope. Perhaps from that can fall out again, like some unifying theory, something mm -hmm. that like we, as humans, no single human has read so broadly and is unable to come up with some brilliant insight, but it could, you could have basically, we can do tool assisted speed runs of science. Hi, this is Will. I'm a YC alum and an independent researcher who's worked across e-commerce, cryptocurrency, and financial industries. And Shri is my co-host, who is a machine learning engineer focused on natural language and processing research. Welcome to the Technium, where we talk about the edge of technology and what we can build with it. An optimistic look at the road ahead. We're two guys discussing edgy, fringe, or overlooked technologies over a couple of drinks. Our show has four segments. First, we give a high-level outline of what the technology is. Second, we talk about what it can do today. Then we let our imagination and optimism take over and see how the world would change if the technology was readily adopted and everywhere. And lastly, if we believe in this future, how can we take a position on it? We've covered the first two segments in part one of our episode on ChatGPT. So if you missed out on the first one, please listen to the previous episode. Now for the continuation of our episode on ChatGPT. Yeah, yeah. And so, I mean, as always, when it comes to the social, political, economic aspects of our talk, we then kind of bleed into the second and third order effects of, of these technologies. And I think for some of the technologies that we talk about, they're more near term and their scope and blast radius is more limited. So this part of the talk tends to be more limited in the second and third, third order effects. But when it comes to ChatGPT3, it seems more nuclear than any of the other things that we've ever talked about. Yes. And so, so I think the implications are far ranging. And I guess we can start with like, where do people flee to? I mean, do you buy the argument that there will still be jobs for people to do? Or if this sort of thing is so good at subsuming our current jobs and any new jobs that will come around that people just can't retrain fast enough or like new generations of people can't come online into the workforce fast enough to be better than computers at these sort of things. Yeah. I, I, uh, I don't think that we, we can hope for, you know, there's going to always going to be new abstractions to flee to. I think that at a certain point we'll have, eaten every type of work that is worth doing oh and... really i mean be careful because what's his name hilbert the mathematician was like there's we've conceived of every mathematics that there is known all there that's left now is to like just write it out like write out the ones that we have or i don't know yeah. like people that have negative predictions about the future typically have been made fun of especially the people that made their name in one aspect of technology or science. <laughs> right, right, right. Right? 
like when when the radio was being shopped to investors, like the investors said, why would I send messages to nobody in particular, <laughs> which yes. is obviously stupid in our modern world. But then like the same people that innovated on the radio thought that television was just completely useless and wouldn't amount to much. And, yeah. and so, or like Lord Kelvin is like heavier than air flying machines is just an impossibility, right? <laughs> you, but, you, you have, you have uh, <laughs> gone through history and put me in a very <laughs> unfortunate company now that I've said this. Stuff. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I think it's just, it's easy to make fun of, of yeah. that sort of thing. But I, I guess I'm just saying like, uh, maybe... I mean, I guess, like, it's one thought exercise to kind of try to expand, like, what sort of things will people still want to do? Is that a possibility? Because the yeah. only way that I can see that not as a possibility is that these large language models or whatever new deep learning things, these things train so quickly. Like, I'm just surprised, mm. not just at the pace of innovation for these large language models, but even when OpenAPI was talking about the story of how they beat the best dota players just having one extra day to train improved yeah. their bot so much better that they were able to beat the world-class dota players because they had a couple extra days to train so yeah i yeah i don't know i think one thing one counter argument to this which it sounds crazy but actually if you listen to sam altman's talks around the place, Sam Altman being the CEO of OpenAI. <laughs> if you have AI models of a certain intelligence, what that allows us to do is to get to post-scarcity in certain things that we, like historically we have struggled with, like energy, mm -hmm. for example. Yeah, And then the conversation shifts, right? Because right now we've just been working under this regime of limited energy, limited abundance of a variety of things. And then now if you have unlimited energy, you've solved all these problems, which we previously thought were fundamental constraints. Now you enter a different part of the growth curve in which humans can still partic participate because now there's a bunch of new stuff which we previously never never could conceive of. One mm -hmm. historical analog to this was that for some time in the turn of the century, I guess turn of the century now is an outdated term because we've turned another <laughs> century, but like, uh, <laughs> you know, in the 1900s, I believe, mm -hmm. yeah. there was a fear that uh, Earth and our current agriculture system would not yeah. be productive enough to yeah. sustain the population of the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and it's and that a was... valid thing, right? It, because the, what is it, that thing hadn't been invented yet, but you'll get to it, I guess. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah I think the, the innovation there was called nitrogen fixation or something, mm -hmm. basically yeah. using some chemical process to enrich, uh, basically manufacture fertilizer. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and enrich the earth such that now... So that you can get greater yield per acre than yes, exactly. you did before. Yeah. Yeah, and that has led to a huge population explosion. And huge population explosion has now led to a variety of 
abundance that we have, right? Because mm -hmm. all those people are now able to do post-scarcity things like invent variety of consumer goods uh, and and entertainment and services that previously were nobody imagined that we would have. Yeah, right? do mathematics and generate memes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, like there are people who are now are making money like generating memes online or or meme type videos online like that back in the 1920s when you were worried about can you eat today like that was not in the shadow well, of a possibility right? yeah yeah i mean i i would say the the late 20s and early 30s because when i look at videos of people in the 20s some of them were actually quite inventive and progressive <laughs> Did you yeah, see yeah. The, the ones where they had like wheels on their their uh like small bicycle wheels, maybe about five inches, uh, strapped to their heels so they can like do skates. <laughs> I see. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Anyways, I, uh, I, I won't. I won't uh, malign. Right, right, right. The... <laughs> no, no, no. It, it's yeah. right, right. No, but I, I think we typically think of any time in the past as being more impoverished and less progressive. But I think yep. like it, it's actually happens in cycles and waves. That's all I was pointing out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah but but society, or at least the economic engine, did not, despite their mm -hmm. Ingenuity as individuals right. did not allow them to capitalize on that ingenuity uh, to the level that we have now, right? Because yeah, we have I, I the economic it, engine. They, they did see the industrial revolution, so they had a version of that. Like the the yeah. standard of living drastically changed between the late. 1800s and the early 1900s to the point where like people in the same lifetime would see like washing machine like early washing machines flying mm -hmm. machines cars like uh, i yeah, guess like yeah. what is it downton abbey is in the same period like yeah and they got season, electricity for the first right time yeah and, season yeah. one and season six are two different shows <laughs> 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 yes yeah that's true uh I, I think you know the 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 overarching point, which I think we're both making though, right. is that once you remove some fundamental constraint, mm -hmm. whether that is uh, industrial revolution, remove the constraint on you know they give incredible leverage to human labor, uh, or nitrogen fixation, which unlocked uh, population growth, and, and now if you have these AIs, which remove some other constraint which i i think it's it could be energy for example uh like using ai to reason about uh, help us reason towards uh more abundant energy uh i think we will unlock a new part of the growth curve which then uh, gives people places to flee to right mm -hmm. if you think about the pie uh, as it is today as fixed size and that yeah. ai is now going to eat eat it and you have to run towards the margins that's yeah. one way of thinking about it. But if you think mm -hmm. of that AI is going to help us grow the pie, then now you don't have to flee to the margins. You There's plenty of new room uh, for humans to go and do other things. Yeah. I mean, I guess this is where entrepreneurs can shine because usually they, they have to like go to, they have to invent new pieces of the pie, basically, um, at least the most successful ones. And then I guess people on the edges of science and technology that enables these pies to be grown. And so I think one thing that Sam Altman talks about a lot is the acceleration of basic science through these uh, deep learning bots, machine learning bots. Yeah. And um, that I think is hard to imagine. It's really hard to imagine um, because 
where the things that we can imagine is constrained by what we understand the basic rules of applied physics or like engineering to be. Mm-hmm. It, and so if new, like right now we're living in a period where at least the people that are in their twenties and maybe thirties, typically twenties, uh, thirties and early forties are used to this acceleration of information technology so that we're kind of used to it. Right. Mm -hmm. But imagine if the same thing was applied to basic sciences where we like go from electrodynamics through quantum mechanics in the period of two decades that enables like new applications. I think that that would have an explosion of different fields and subfields that would be made available as a result. And it's really hard to imagine what that could be um, because yeah. I, you don't have the specific examples of the physics, but like if you compress everything that happened, I don't know, in the hundred years between 1850 and 1950, like that's a lot of stuff. Yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> Into, right. What? Two decades. And then the AI helps you figure that out and helps you exploit it into technologies. I don't know, like that, that's crazy. And I think even crazier is if this sort of stuff is applied to culture where you and I previously have already talked about, like, we already do not keep up with whatever currently the kids are talking about on TikTok and stuff. Like, (laughs) and so a, a lot of the jargon on DAOs are well out of my reach in not not that I can't do it. It's just I don't have the time and the inclination to go figure it out. And so yeah. it'll be even more the case uh, when culture is accelerated. Memes are accelerated by this sort of stuff too. Yeah, I think that the basic science thing is definitely where a lot of efforts have been focused. So there's a great uh, service called Illicit, which some people mm, yeah. use. We'll put it in the show notes. It I've helps. tried it out. Yeah. Well, yeah. did it help you understand the things better? Some. I mean, I, I got more value out of ChatGPT because I could ask specific questions about it, as basic as, as they were. With Illicit, mm-hmm. I think they had a specific use case in mind, and, and maybe I'm not the demographic because typically it's it's like professional researchers yeah. at academic universities that are uh, reading papers and stuff. So yeah, yeah. Well, so so anyway, the, at a high level, it's a tool that helps uh, professional researchers keep up with advances in their field. Mm-hmm. And so I think one of the potential constraints that people have right now as researchers is that there's just too much information uh, yeah. and it's hard to synthesize and build on top of each other. So a lot of people are just making incremental progress in some silos, uh, whereas they could be building on top of this shared knowledge. That's the hope with this, these kind of AI assisted no, basic I, science stuff. I think it could go further. I mean, like for any field that is disparate, like could it come up with the unifying representation, like a transformer or projective geometric algebra to unify fields to make Ooh, it easier yeah. to understand? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I see what you're saying. Yeah, I think that is, I mean, based on what we've said, it, it that it's, the chat GPT is unable to come up with anything insightful right. for even right. like writing an essay. Mm-hmm. Um, it but might that's be far today. out, but, but yeah, today. That's yeah. Today. But, but yeah. So I think we'll get there. And I think, and then that goes back to your 
initial question at the top of the episode was like, how can we um, coax out like some of these like mm, yeah. uh, insights that are locked up in the brain and the weights of mm -hmm. this these models because they've yeah. read so widely. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, nowadays mathematicians are using like theorem provers. I think there's still resistance, but they're starting to use theorem provers to do like computer assisted proofs. And so you could conceivably do the same sorts of stuff with more loosey goosey uh disciplines. So yeah. You know. I wonder if I mean, the thing that we need a lot of help on is economics, I would say. If we can actually good get good predictive economics that we can prove stuff with, I, I think that would go a long way. Because people argue about economics, this or that, because we can't do the A-B testing on it, right? So, you, you, you know what all this, this reminds me of is dynamic land. Uh, <laughs> Why is that? <laughs> what, what's that? Why is that? Like, oh, why is that? Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. So, by, by the way, if you're uh, wondering what it is, we have an episode on it. Uh, check it out. We'll we'll, mm -hmm. we'll put a little card. But right. dynamic land is this effort uh, to build a embodied room scale computing environment mm -hmm. uh, by this researcher Brett, Brett Victor, and his vision for it is that. It would be a place where communities could convene and mm -hmm. work through civic problems like uh, yeah. uh, urban planning, mm -hmm. economic policy, and maybe other political decisions, uh, yeah, yeah. scientific decisions, things like this. It's kind of meant to be like a computational library, library in the sense that it's like a public community room, but instead of places to read and learn, it's like a place to do computation together like yes. uh, to do activities that is computer supported so you can talk about like you know given this train track what are all the different traffic thing traffic patterns through the city and so you'd be able to bring that up on the table and talk about it together yeah exactly and brett victor has been pretty uh adamant that the vision for dynamic land, it, despite it being a new type of programming environment or whatever, is not to do the kind of programming that you and I do mm -hmm. uh, day to day. It's supposed yeah. to be the civic space that people yeah. can come and participate and reason about problems that they know in the domain, in the language uh, and abstraction of the real world, right? right. And not yeah. in the language of computers. Right. And I don't know if dynamic land in its current manifestation of uh, with projectors and colored uh, dots mm -hmm. and all of this kind of things will achieve that vision, but mm -hmm. maybe uh, these kind of chat bots and, and, and AI uh, agents could be a way to, to achieve that same end where people can come together and say, hey, we're uh, faced with this economic issue in our country or in our city or whatever it is. And they reason through it, uh, through this bot, and and basically use it as a tool to reach a type of consensus that previously they wouldn't be able to. Obviously, this is a very 
optimistic and and, and idealistic mm, but yeah 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 but we we have to be in order to look at <laughs> the future so yeah like, like maybe there's a certain types of problems which people clash over because we don't have a shared substrate to reason about them together yeah i i guess like it's uh, under the assumption that people will delegate to the ai basically as a moderator like an intelligent moderator to help because like it could call out bs on both sides of the argument and so like given that they they trusted to do that then maybe it's a way for people to come to consensus using it as a moderator of some sort yeah and it could even inject its own insights uh mm -hmm. that are missing from the I don't, debate or, or whatever it is uh and and it yeah. could synthesize some information Again, maybe it can run some economic planning or whatever that maybe neither no, neither party actually knows anything about. Yeah, I mean, in the long term, like, could you have a government that is run by an AI at the head? I mean, people will still participate, but like, it, like you're we're talking about it as like a local thing where people come together to determine whether it's going to be a water fountain in the park or not. But like, if you <laughs> yeah. scale it up. <laughs> In the large, then yeah. you could conceivably have a government run this way. And it's a little strange. Like, we have, like, sci-fi shows about how, what is it, travelers? Like, this time-traveling, like, in the future, it's the, like, the humans are decimated and there's an AI that helps control, like, direct humans to travel back in time to save humans again. That's the premise of the show. But anyways, the weird thing is just that like humans are directed and put their faith into this AI to tell them what to do. And it's kind of like they built, built their own God. And so in like what you're describing in the small could conceivably mm -hmm. be scaled up in the large as we have a government um, that is effectively run by the ai but like people also participate it's not like ai just tells people what to do but it's kind of like a mediator it's it's a participant in mm -hmm. government it's it's a strange thought i, I think yeah. people won't accept it within the next hundred years or so but <laughs> it's a strange thought i can see it eventually happening yeah i, I mean it sounds it sounds absolutely bonkers but yeah I think that, again, I think it's useful to go to historical analogs. Like, certain aspects of the way that we've structured our government in the United States are predicated on the idea that communication is hard and takes a mm -hmm. long time. Yeah. And so we need – they've structured it in such a way that uh, uh, decisions are delegated to people because they are in the seat of government far away from their uh, electorate, right? And Oh, you, you, you mean communication across vast distances hard. Vast it's distances. Not that, uh, yes. oh, right, yeah, right, yeah, yeah. not communication yeah, yeah, yeah. between humans, but communication right, right. across vast distances is hard. Right. Right. right, right. And so we have like the electoral college is set up in mm -hmm. such a way. The the Senate, Senate and whatnot are, are structured in, mm -hmm. with this in mind, right? Yeah, yeah. And now – you know, we're running into the limits of this because all of those constraints under which the system was designed have shrunken, right? So we mm -hmm. have instant communication across arbitrary large distances. Yeah. And so some of those initial design decisions don't make sense. 
Uh, and we still well, haven't fixed... Unless we scale up to interplanetary governance, then maybe so. Like, the yeah. Electoral College will still... I mean, I have a whole other thing. I, I'm actually for it, but, like, anyway, yeah. that, that's just a joke. Let's go back to what we're talking yeah. about. And, so. I, and this is not a politics <laughs> podcast, so I won't yeah, go yeah, into, yeah. you know, the, the, the particulars of this, uh, you know, these issues. But, again, I think by, by analogy, uh, there are certain... You know, if we unlock a new set of technological capabilities, that might make certain assumptions of our current system mm -hmm. uh, invalid. Invalid, such that they seem antiquated. I don't know what yet, but I think. Yeah, uh, I don't know yeah. what yet either. But <laughs> some somebody that who's the equivalent of like Karl Marx is sitting out there punching all this stuff on there, like Google Docs or something. Yeah, that's because true. that's true. I mean, Karl Marx only made sense in the context of the Industrial Revolution, right? And like, so, yeah. so yeah, there's some new political ideology which makes sense now with this stuff that we don't and know. That, what it is. That's going to be like a huge upheaval that's like predicated on the so social, political, and economic impact of these deep learning, large, like uh, large language models, whatever you want to call them. Machine learning? Yeah. What's the typical? Yeah, thing people call calling them large yeah. language models. Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah, I mean, like, I think like for a long time, people, like we live in the water of capitalism. It's hard to imagine things working any other way. But like, if it is true that like these large language models and machine learning models will be able to subsume any new jobs and tasks that are coming out then like what are people going to do if they can't make money and so we've talked about UB, like the universal basic income and, and any other thing else or like some people have talked about like how capitalism isn't quite doing it for people but mm. like nobody's come up with like a better thing either yeah. and so I don't know like I think this is where some of the instability will come from and maybe we can head things off that path at, at coming up with a solution, but maybe yeah. more likely than not, there's going to be massive upheaval um, as a result of the old systems not working and we can't make the transition in a smooth way. Cause like, I think, the, yeah. Yeah. Cause like I, our, our de de the democratic Republic, like the, that we have is for the smooth transition of power, but we don't have a mechanism for a smooth transition of economic mm. models. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That has always been historically messy. Uh, but uh, maybe this, this for whatever audience that we have, uh, consider this a, an RFM request for manifesto yeah. for <laughs> a new, economic models that have adapted to the existence of LLMs. And I guess more generally, we're talking about AGI, right? Artificial yeah. general intelligence. Yeah. yeah, I don't know. We'll see. I think, I think those, these things, right. I think we, we have in our, in our prep work here as well, just like how do we distribute wealth uh, in this? How do we attribute value? All of those things are we're way out of our our pay scale pay grade here uh but the, i think people there are people out there who are well suited to thinking about this and i think people need to get on it otherwise it's going to be you're right it's going to be a there's going to be a discontinuity and that discontinuity yeah. is going to be a scary time
Yeah, it's going to be a scary time. Uh, surprisingly, according to like some high-level talks that Sam Altman has talked about, like OpenAI has been exploring this sort of stuff themselves. Um, okay. And so they're the ones that are putting this stuff out there, but they're also doing the work. I think they're doing it at UBI experiment also, which I was surprised by. Yeah. Um, and so this, they, they are investigating. So somebody's doing the work, but I don't think enough people are doing the work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. It's going to be, it's going to be wild. Yeah. Wild. Well, uh, <laughs> I mean, if, if the wildness of the early 1900s is any indication, I mean, it's, I don't know. I don't know if I want to get caught in the middle of that. <laughs> right. I mean, it could be that like the Gen Z think that they have it bad now. Like, wait till you see what is brewing in the next two to three decades. Gosh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, So I guess one of the things that I wanted to touch upon also that, a lot of people in the space don't seem to be worried about at all is whether there is a platform risk here to build on top of OpenAI's API. Because I, I don't know about you, but I guess I've been in the tech industry long enough to remember multiple rug pulls in which, um, you know, when when you're on the bottom of the S curve and uh, a platform's gaining popularity, the pie is growing and everybody's winning so everybody's happy but then as you move through the middle of the s curve into a trans transition then a lot of times you get uh the platform to reap the highest rewards for itself and um this was evident uh with the twitter api i remember a lot of people building on top of it in what like 2010 ish somewhere around yeah. there and then, and then I guess they switched CEOs and decided that they're a media company or like they want advertising or something or whatever the strategy is. Like they just rug pulled and destroyed the entire third party ecosystem. And yeah. if you go even further back, it, like Microsoft dom Microsoft's dominance in the '90s for OS, like they dominated the personal computer market. And so if you wanted to do anything, you had to go through Microsoft and they would just readily compete with you. They found the biggest applications that people were building for the personal computer. And it turned out to be like the office suite and they just either bought it or they built competitors or they bought your competitors and just sold that. And so, and there wasn't that much you could do about it. And in some ways, like nowadays, uh, I really want to use VS Code, but I still have some like <laughs> reverberations of Microsoft in the days of yore. So I, I don't know if they're just lying in wait until they kind of gather a lot of the developer ecosystem because they, they bought GitHub, right? And uh, among yeah. other things. So so I wonder if they're just lying in wait. But anyways, the, the point is that like, is there an existential risk in building on top of OpenAI's API? Like, um, I mean, there's plenty of other examples we can point to, but uh, I think you get the gist, right? And so is it that yeah. everybody's like not thinking about it, they don't remember it, or is it that like training these models is going to be commoditized and fast? Um, and, and is the cost of training things also dropping 
uh, really fast uh, because, you know, Stable Diffusion came out not shortly after, right? Dolly and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. So I'm just to draw a, a clear picture of what we mean by this rug pull, which you, you went into detail. But for example, in the Twitter case, initially people were talking about Twitter as though it was a new protocol for the internet. It was yeah. a kind of real-time messaging protocol, which uh, it could be used by humans. It could also be used by machines and uh, and enable sort of this broadcast communication. And people were building clients, uh, applications, integrations on top of Twitter, assuming that it was basically this short messaging broadcast protocol. Mm -hmm. And then ultimately what happened was that they said, oh no, we need to make money. And then uh, they you know, revoked everybody's API keys or put such severe limitations that it was untenable to use them. And then they moved everything first parties in order to capture all the value that they were creating with their service. Mm -hmm. Now, OpenAI has a very, very similar uh, analog analogous position because for now, OpenAI's position is we provide GPT-3 or ChatGPT or whatever as, an, as a tool in your toolkit for app developers to use to build AI-enhanced apps. Now, it's possible that they could flip the script the same way Twitter did and said, you know what, we're working hard to, to train this model. Nobody else can do this. Why don't we just make all of the best apps first party and capture all the money that everybody else is making off our backs? Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's, that's the analogy I drew to, like, they say the Microsoft suite and stuff like that, uh, the Office suite. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I think that for now, unfortunately, OpenAI is the only only game in town for a model which has the same capabilities as GPT-3. It's interesting because it's not the biggest parameter model that's out there. There are equivalent, equivalently sized open source models like Bloom and OPT and a few others, which you can find on GitHub, you can find on Hugging Face, they have the same capacity to learn as GPT-3. So it's not a question of do they have such unique access to big models? What I think it is actually is that, like we discussed at the top of the episode, GPT-3 is the only model of its capacity that has been trained in this exact way with code tuning, instruction fine tuning, and then RLHF. All of those mm -hmm. things are actually very resource intensive because, uh, for example, RLHF, you need to collect lots of human, uh, human labeled feedback examples uh, for instruction tuning, the same thing. You need a huge corpus of instructions that you can then teach the model what it means to follow instructions. So I think they have a unique moat and that's pretty, e that's pretty hard for the community to uh, just bring to their open source models. And I think the other thing that is different between GPT-3 and 
Dolly and stable diffusion is that diffusion models, because of the way in which they're structured, are less computationally intensive to run on a home computer or a mm -hmm. home GPU. Whereas with transformer-based models, transformers are actually very, very computationally inefficient. Uh, mm -hmm. Or like they require, like at inference time, they require a lot of compute. And so that also makes it so that it's unlikely that we'll see a GPT-3 open source variant that you could just run on your uh, server or your home GPU the same way that right now you can run stable diffusion. I mean, you yeah. can run stable diffusion on an iPhone now. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, uh, I, I don't think that we're, we're going to see inference on a small scale with these transformer-based models. So yeah, mm -hmm. I mean, I think that the, because of those reasons, because OpenAI has this very unique and clever way of training these models, which is resource intensive and financially intensive, as well as the fact that transformer-based models are uh, hard to run at inference time, people are basically going to be reliant on OpenAI and GPT uh, for the future. So yeah, it does. I think it does leave people vulnerable to this. Now, I think that the one sort of saving grace is that Sam Altman claims that the charter of OpenAI is to achieve AGI. And that's where their sites are headed. And that sort of implies that they're going to leave a lot of opportunity on the table while they're pursuing their bigger vision, basically their trillion dollar vision, right. leaving everybody else the possibility to build the billion dollar company. Billion dollar company. Yeah. I mean, he jokes, did he say jokingly in a lecture when somebody asked him like how will open ai make money he's just like i don't know i figure we just ask the agi and it'll tell us <laughs> yeah. yeah and he was dead serious uh so yeah but i i don't know i mean i think that's you can't rely on that right it's pretty scary as a business to build on top of an api in which you take them at their face value take them at their word that they're going to be distracted doing something else and they're never going to yeah, uh, compete like with you or try to shut you down. Yeah, their incentives aren't going to change. And especially yeah. when the core value prop of your tech is actually in somebody else's company. Um, I think that's that's what's scary. Either the core value prop or the distribution, right? Those are the two main things that you need in-house in your under your purview and control when you have your company. Otherwise, it's a bit scary. People have bootstrapped off of that. Not every company has started with their own. I mean, there's plenty of variations of bootstrap, but like, I guess people are hoping to figure out how to train their own once the price drops so they can leap off of it. Maybe that's the bet that some people are making. Yeah, there are definitely other providers of this types of APIs. And I think that they're hoping that they're going to be able to compete on some metric, whether that's price uh, or, yeah, basically, like, could they provide a lesser quality version of the same thing at a lower price or something like that? Well, uh, I, but... I guess I assume that the cost to train will drop as well. Although I haven't seen any trend lines about, like, how fast it'll drop. 
Yeah, I, I guess so. I mean, it seems intuitive that the cost to train would drop. But here's the thing. The, the winner kind of accrues advantage, right? Because mm-hmm. if you just look at, again, what we described at the top of the episode, GPT got better and better almost silently, right? It, like, it was uh, built through these building blocks of initially large-scale language modeling, and then they trained it on code, then they trained it on these things, these uh, other things. And now with ChatGPT, they have a model which is good enough that they've put in front of millions of people and they're generating tr- tons of training data by just the transcripts of how people are using ChatGPT. I'm sure they are using that to further train GPT-4 or uh, continue to improve ChatGPT itself. And mm-hmm. so it, you definitely do get this flywheel going such that even if training costs reduce over time, uh, OpenAI has accrued a massive advantage in getting to market and uh, and that sort of snowballs. Yeah. Yeah, but they're not taking the... Well, I guess they could take the data that they're getting from people using it and feeding it back. And so that would be one of the flywheels that they have. Yeah, I mean, I would be surprised if they're not doing that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, I I don't know. I think that this this one, in this aspect, I am less optimistic. I don't know how to balance the mission of OpenAI with the fact that they're going to have to make money in some way, in some intermediary way. Sure, they can say that they're going to make AGI, and maybe that'll happen in, I don't know, 10 years? Is that crazy to say? I don't know. At <laughs> but, this point, uh, it's hard to say anymore. <laughs> I thought the stuff that we're doing was twenty, ten to 20 years away, so I don't know. Yeah, but I don't know. I, I, if somebody starts turning the screws and says, hey, you need to start showing some some results right right away, maybe they'll take some quick wins off the table, right? Like maybe they will introduce a AI um, document editor or something and eat. Yeah. I mean, I, I think lunch. it's our, it's already happened. Cause I remember I'd have to find the article again and maybe you guys can look for it instead of us putting it, uh, putting in a link. But uh, there was a, there was a company in Texas that was doing AI copywriting and they were building it on top of GPT three and they had figured out the correct prompt that helped copywriters generate the thing that they wanted. But now that they ke- the OpenAI came out with ChatGPT, it really puts their entire business at risk. And perhaps not intentionally, I think you're right? referring to, to, to Jasper. Is it Jasper? Yeah. Uh, yeah, 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 I must yeah, be yeah. Jasper. Yeah. Yeah, so, so I mean, that's, that's kind of already happened. So I think people... People thought it was a moat and they thought like the prompt engineering part was going to be the moat, I guess. In the same way that like when Google first came out, like people figured out, oh, okay, keywords, some keywords are worth more than others. So let's keep it a secret, like what SEO keywords are that would, you know, get the most ad like that, that would be the biggest bang for the buck. But then like Google eventually released tools to help 
you see that, right? So I think that advantage has gone down considerably and uh, evened out because Google, it's in Google's interest for everybody to compete on the valuable words rather than just some people who happen to stumble upon it, right? Yeah. And, and so I think it's a similar thing here where, yeah, like it doesn't make sense for open AI that there's a bunch of third parties that happen to know what the magical incantation for prompts are. They would just want people to use it, especially if their goal is like AGI. I don't, right? That seems yeah. to be in line with their goal. Like we want people, regular people to just use it because it's in line with AGI to help with people that figured out some prompt uh, magical incantation for a previous version of our thing. And so, yeah, prompt engineering has to be the shortest career <laughs> uh, in tech history. So, yeah, I think that going back to the Microsoft analogy that you drew, I think you were in a bad place if you were in the 90s or late 80s or whatever and decided that you're going to be in the business of writing word processors. <laughs> and similarly in the 90s, you like were going to be in a bad shape if you were building a browser company, right? Specifically Netscape got completely mm -hmm. screwed because they thought, hey, everybody has personal computers and internet connections now. We're going to build a, a, a browser and we're going to capture all this value. No, turns out that Microsoft decided that they were going to do it instead because they had all the distribution uh, into people's home computers. Yeah. Uh, wait, you were talking about Netscape, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think Netscape gave away their browser for free because they were going to make money off of all their servers. So they were trying to sell servers. And then so they got oh, screwed yeah. on, on both ends because like Microsoft had the OS as distribution. So they would package Internet Explorer as default. And then as that was happening, Linux was getting more and more popular and it was taking over the server space. And so they were getting screwed on both fronts. I mean, I guess... Mark Andreessen can tell us, but he's too busy <laughs> tweeting nowadays. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that with OpenAI, it's probably going to be something similar. If you are building apps that are the immediate obvious use cases of uh, GPT, I think that OpenAI is likely to in-house those and make those first-party capabilities of ChatGPT. I think for that's example, usually the case for any platform, right? Like even just looking at yeah. the recent ones like Apple and stuff, they they kept messages to themselves. I mean, there are yeah. there is Signal and like Facebook made pretty good inroads with Messenger, but like there's no small company that kind of made its headway. There, for a while, like group messaging was a thing. I guess WhatsApp is the only case I can think of, right? Yeah. 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 But there, there's a huge graveyard of messaging companies like mm -hmm. GroupMe and things, which were oh, based yeah. on this idea of social yeah. groups messaging each other. All of that got moved into iMessage, basically. Yeah. And then and then the ones that survived are things that uh, like is internationally used as a moat. So Line is very popular in Asia. And then there's a couple other ones I can't remember. So yeah. like messaging has fragmented but along geographic sections and so yeah i don't know it's 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 not a perfect example one way or the other but um but yeah like i would say iphone yeah like most of the basic stuff 
they they probably took over. Um, yeah, or like uh, there used to be a ton of camera apps that were adding camera enhancements oh, yeah, to yeah, the yeah, iPhone. Yeah. But yeah. then they just added all those same enhancements right. to the camera app because why wouldn't they, right? Right, right, exactly. <laughs> and so I think Instagram only got away with it because they turned themselves into a, a social media app and that yeah. ended up getting bought out by Facebook. And so until there is an Apple car, like people are predicting, they're not going to do Uber. But if Apple car was already around by the time that they were doing mobile. Maybe they would have done like an Uber Eats because that could, why not? Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, I think that that's generally the trend. So I don't know. A lot of people these days are building web search on top of GPT three. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, I, I was experimenting with uh, some of that as well. Uh, I abandoned <laughs> that ship uh, because I do think that it seems just low-hanging fruit for OpenAI to turn mm-hmm. on web browsing on ChatGPT and have that just be the best search engine that's powered by GPT. There's no beating it, right? They have the in-house expertise. They have the tight mm-hmm. integration. They're not calling it over some API. It's actually uh, vertically integrated. Yeah. And so I think similarly, there might be a few other use cases of GPT and, and ChatGPT which people are currently building as a as a layer on top of these APIs, which OpenAI might just in-house and and provide that freely available to uh, anyone who uses their services. Then that leaves uh, the rest of the long tail of use cases for this uh, wide open, right? Just because Microsoft made Microsoft Office and Internet Explorer doesn't mean they made every single Windows app that ever existed. There was a vibrant <laughs> ecosystem of people who were making money off of the Windows ecosystem. Yeah. They, they, they so did try. So then subsequently then, what would you... Well, maybe we can leave it for the section later about what to take a position. And so let's put a pin in it. But basically, yep. if you want to look at this long tail of stuff that won't get trampled on by OpenAI, what would you actually look for? So let's put a pin on that and wait for the next section. So when it comes to like second and third order effects, are there other things that you think will reverberate if ChatGPT and these large language models are are pervasive everywhere? Yeah, my most provocative position on this is that I think in the near future, it's going to be possible to build billion-dollar companies as an individual, a solo founder unicorn, basically. That's a little crazy, but I guess if yeah. you think of the LLVMs as like just interns, I mean, if you're good at getting interns to do things, then maybe. Yeah, that's the hope. Is that? Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's going back to the the office analogy that I was making earlier. In order to run a paper company or one branch of a paper company, at least in whatever universe the office is set in, in the 2000s or something, you needed 20 people. But you could probably re- you know, reduce that headcount by, by half, uh, if not to one third of those people, if you just sign up for Rippling or, or some other um, HR as a service company. And so... I think that these tools are giving founders incredible leverage. Mm -hmm. And similarly with something like OpenAI, 
especially as it gets better at generating code from scratch or based on high-level instructions, yeah. uh, I think you're going to be able to have very, very high-leverage individuals who are able to, like you said, manage, array, an army of AI interns yeah. and get stuff done. I mean, I can see that for certain kinds of businesses, maybe something like agencies. I don't know. Um, maybe. Well, so in order for that to happen, then it would have to be something where you're producing digital goods, at least in the near term, right? And yeah. it probably won't be things that build software products, at least in the near term. So my guess is it would have to be something that would be like digital assets. Man, slap an NFT on that. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, the so I'm guessing it's something like ebooks of how to get into college tailored for your specific needs. So maybe you can get like tailored for your particular choice of schools, demographic, and whatever other things. And then you get a ebook that is catered to you about how to get into college. Maybe that's, that's something like something along those yeah. lines, perhaps. Yeah. Something like that. I think content marketing is, yeah. um, is a, is actually a bigger opportunity than I anticipated. For example, companies like morning brew and mm -hmm. a few other just newsletters, email newsletters mm -hmm. yeah. have been valued at, millions or I think even tens of millions of dollars. And so three, what are we I, doing? <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> uh, well, coming soon, the, uh, the Technium newsletter, uh, right. <laughs> but yeah, I think that, uh, something like content marketing and, and, and in fact, the, the ebook is almost seems archaic. Like I think you could have just a website, which adapt to, mm, to your generated. questions about yeah 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 and, and just generates it on the fly something like that yeah i think that could easily uh, for certain uh niches you could build certainly a million dollar company i think you could build a uh, in 10 million dollar company already and maybe in the future if uh chat gpt or uh llms can do more and more things yeah, maybe a billion dollar company sounds like a stretch, but I think it could happen. Well, but then you'd have to think of like these are orders of magnitude, right? Three orders of magnitude uh between a million and a billion. And so it would have to be something where the AI can keep up with the demand. Yeah, like I don't know, it's it's a little hard to imagine, but I uh, I guess these markets exist. And so either, well, maybe I, I think the a lot of the potential is is unlocked when it can write code in software. I think because like a yeah. lot of a lot of uh, enterprise software providers get screwed because they have to do a custom integration as a one time thing that doesn't apply to any but other customer, and then. In the worst case, the guy, the the big company doesn't buy. In the best case, they spend like months doing integration. And so maybe yeah. the complexity of these things can be tapered off with the help of 
these large language models where given the large company systems just write the glue code so that we can do this integration and just bury that boilerplate underneath the LLM. Uh, LL, yeah. yeah. And so yeah. maybe that's that's one thing that can really accelerate um, this sort of thing. I get the sense that a lot of traditional businesses, when they talk about moving to the cloud, uh, what they really mean is just doing these nasty integrations. So they were mm -hmm. previously using some uh, software or they, they were communicating, they were, had these integrations with some suppliers, which they were emailing files around or something. Yeah. And they're spending lots of money on consultants to modernize that and automate that and have it run on, on the cloud basically. And mm -hmm. so I imagine that for those kinds of businesses, maybe it's not necessarily, um, uh, tech, tech businesses, you could come in as a disruptor and say, okay, what we're going to, um, we're going to do things using these LLMs, which previously these incumbents were doing in all these very archaic ways and basically bring the costs down and take over somehow. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I don't know. I, uh, I think it's hard for me to see that far. I guess it's conceivable, but it's, it's hard for me to draw the lines all the way because like a billion dollars is a lot of money. It's like yeah. orders of magnitude. Like sometimes when I think about like how much Bitcoin would I have to have had to buy at a certain time in order to make a billion dollars or, or even a hundred million or something like you still had yeah. to spend a lot of money <laughs> to get there. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. But I mean, okay. I, just to calibrate it, uh, and I, I, I take your point, I think uh, my estimate for what you could do today using LLMs is probably $10 million company mm, because there have been email newsletters that have sold yeah, for $10 million, which yeah, are yeah, fairly simple one-man shops. I can buy that because it's limited, but like we're, we're projecting out that like these LLMs are going to get much better and we haven't quite seen how much better they'll get, yeah. but we're already yeah. surprised of how good they are compared to where they were, what, 15 months ago. So, oh um, yeah, I guess we're, we're thinking that, okay, we're projecting out and this is not the end of the S curve. We're at the beginning of the S curve. So yeah. it, it could actually exceed our expectations there. And so that, that's kind of, where we're coming from. Yeah. And I agree. It's a, it's a wild idea. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> I would yeah, be yeah. surprised if it happened. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Take note listeners. Um, so I get, I remember reading some article saying that the matrix had it all wrong, that people aren't going to be used as batteries, but instead they are going to be used to generate text because apparently these LLMs are sucking up so much text and data that they're running out of text and data for them to use to train these things to be even better because apparently we haven't hit the limits of what these LLMs can do as we scale up their data and compute. And so um, it could be that people might have jobs in the future where they generate text for computers uh, doing, I don't know what, maybe just their job is tweeting or writing blog posts or something. And that's where they get 
paid in micro payments over the Lightning Network, perhaps. I don't know. I I don't know how plausible that is. Uh, like, what do you think? Will Will it just keep generating? Like, will Will generating text be like a job for people in the future? I think my skepticism of that is that one, they would have to generate text which has meaningful gradient updates to the model. Yeah, for some particular task that, that they're assigned or whatever. You can't just be writing like shit posts or, or memes, unless that's the task. But yeah, I don't think or, the, or, the world's or, economic engine runs on shit posts and memes yet. <laughs> yet, right? Yeah, right. Well, or or uh, GPT has already been trained on tons of shit posts and memes because it's read the internet. And so right. there's no value left in writing that kind of stuff. You have mm -hmm. to start writing very obscure things that it hasn't seen yet on the internet. Uh, that's my initial reaction to that. But I think my more well-founded reaction to that is I think the intention of chat GPT or just GPT and LLMs is to move towards making them multimodal. Mm -hmm. uh, we actually have a episode about this. Yeah. Uh, check out our multitask, multimodal models episode. But as a quick recap, what that means is that a single model is able to understand different types of input, whether that's text, audio, video, other sensor uh, sensors as well. And so I think that that's the direction that OpenAI is going with chat GPT or GPT. Mm. And I've heard some speculation that the reason why OpenAI released Whisper, which is a speech-to-text model, and that mm -hmm. that is available publicly and open source, right? The speculation... So that presumably you can build your own Alexa, um, yeah, so that you yeah, can but... have OpenAI listening on you instead of Amazon. Is is that the? Uh, well, so I think the, oh, wait, the, no, it's a repo, right? It's a repo. It's a so repo. You should be able to, oh, so then, yeah, you can run your own without having people listen in on it. Uh, unless yeah, they have people are building like, some sort. Yeah. Yeah. People are building cool stuff. They're building like a podcast transcription and all kinds mm -hmm. of things on top of this. But mm -hmm. I think the speculation is that, uh, open AI released a whisper because that's just a throwaway project that is part of their overall plan to run Whisper on all types mm -hmm. of audio data and train GPT on, on that in order to yeah. make GPT aware of all of the information that's currently locked up in, in audio. And so I think that that is probably the direction that OpenAI will go if they run out of text data on the internet is one, maybe transcribing audio into text and feeding it that way. And mm -hmm. then maybe later in some other further revisions, changing the architecture of GPT itself so that it can just ingest audio or pictures or video or whatever. I see. Yeah. So you're just saying that if we run out of text, we still have petabytes of video for it to go through right yeah i mean yeah there there is the the entire youtube archive for things to go through i mean that's that would be absurd then that means that you could potentially write text and have it generate videos anything that you would want to watch whether it's movies or short clips or funny clips right and yeah you 
could potentially have it go the other way around where you are looking at something and you're seeing something in real life and you record that as a video or in real time, and then it would be able to synthesize or generate something based on the video as a prompt. Yeah, I think that's probably the more likely direction that it would go, at least mm -hmm. initially. Mm -hmm. And we've seen some uh, successes with uh, Flamingo, I believe, out of DeepMind on the episode that I just referred to, where it was able to take a look at pictures and then explain what was happening in them or explain why some visual joke was funny. And so mm. similarly, I think that... Um, Flamingo, I don't know how many parameters it, ha it has or had, but GPT obviously is state of the art for uh, it, you know, in its class. And so I imagine that it, once it's able to reason about pictures and reason about video, it will be quite powerful. And I, and I think that that actually has a bunch of new use cases, which I'm unable to enumerate. Like it seems like it's, <laughs> it would be really cool to feed GPT video and have it understand what was happening. But because I've never had such a capability, I don't know what exactly I'd use it for. Maybe uh, as I guess, like a security watchman or something. Yeah. I was going to say like law enforcement might love that sort of stuff because they love having just footage because they think that something's always going down somewhere. <laughs> Yeah, right. And, and it'll feed and so, into the surveillance state, basically. Right, right, right. It feeds into the surveillance state, which yeah. I guess as an aside, maybe like authoritarian states never worked because we didn't have the tech. But now like the tech has caught up to it. It's much easier to run an authoritarian state than it used to be. And maybe one consequence is that there'll be more authoritarian states as a result. Yeah. I think that that's possible. Obviously, China and their social credit system is powered by some level of AI or mm -hmm. something, some automated systems, if not yeah. AI, uh, to enforce at least minor petty things like jaywalking and such. Right. And so, yeah, yeah if they had a multimodal GPT that could watch all their security cameras and understand what was happening, yeah, that would be... Uh, yeah, that, scary that would be a use case there. Yeah, that's um, a use case. Right, right. Use case. <laughs> I guess the, the a more benign thing would probably be, I want to say something in the entertainment. Like maybe maybe no longer. Uh, yeah, I guess one thing is you can film actors on a, any old crappy stage. Like you don't need green screen. But then like you can just tell the computer to do it either. I don't know if it can do it in real time, but maybe in post that the actors are in this setting and they're wearing this like costume and stuff like that. So costume designers will no longer like, sew anything they will be manipulating the AI to describe what it is that the characters are wearing. And of course you'd have to have some sort of stability between the frames in the image because right now any demo that I've seen for AI, like they just stitch together um, frames, uh, unrelated frames. And so you get a lot of perturbation. It looks kind of cool, but like it will never fly as a movie. Right. So yeah. I, I think there's probably a way around that stability, but 
yeah, like you should be able to just describe in detail what sort of costumes the actors are wearing and then be able to do that. And then I guess going one step further, you could conceivably just replace the actors as well. Like, do you think ChatGPT can create an actor from a prompt? And then you have to like tweak it. Yeah, I think that it, the one. I mean, you... it have to be tra- uh, like uh, what do you call it? It has to be trained on specific tasks, like generating emotions on on a face or something like that. But yeah, I think that that actually is one use case of going the other way, which is having it understand video as an input which mm. is understanding basically the minor inflections in, yeah. in, in, in people's faces or how yeah. they conduct themselves, their body language and things like this. Right. Uh, I don't think that open AI or GPT has any understanding of emotion, right? And you mentioned yeah. before that that's probably important for a variety of use cases. So yeah, maybe if it studied lots of video of human beings interacting, it would be able to pick up some notion of what it means to walk with a certain posture, talk with a certain cadence, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera, in a way that you don't really get from just reading text. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe maybe that would work. Oh man, if if that sort of thing is possible, I can imagine people trying to recruit these LLMs to fire people or like in difficult emotional charge con. <laughs> I mean, wasn't there this movie about it with uh George Clooney where his job was to fly around the country and and uh fire people and his protege came up with this like online firing tool where she gets to fire people from the comfort of her own desk and it doesn't work out because of this emotionally charged aspect of, of the job, I guess. But yeah, I mean, if, if we're projecting out beyond like actual just generating text, but generating video, maybe that's a weird world. Yeah. And, or even just interpreting video to assist salespeople or people that with autism or people with autism. Yeah, exactly. Like if you just had a video feed and this thing was interpreting somebody's emotional state and feeding it back and saying, Hey, you should do this thing next, say it more like this and less like that uh, to achieve some outcome. Yeah. It could be a good uh, assistant emotional assistant yeah aren't there already sales assistants that tries to detect somebody's emotional state based on the inflections in their voice on the phone i mean i I don't is there i I, I don't know (laughs) i thought i heard about it but like i don't think it's commonly used in sales for i guess variety of reasons maybe that's not like the biggest thing so i don't know we're just talking out of ass here since like neither (laughs) one of us are are salespeople, but uh, yeah. I guess like we're, we're, I, I think one of the reasons that we do this exercise is because it stretches our imagination because like, I think a lot of people tend to stop at like what is possible today, but like you really miss out on possibilities and potential for a space when, when you just limit yourself to that. And so obviously there are things that we're going to get wrong, 
but I, I think where we uh, reach out, like the, it's, uh, we get we get more hits. Like we we we, yeah. we get more hits as a result. I think. Yeah, I mean, it sounds it sounds bizarre to mm-hmm. imply that people who need help interpreting people's emotions might walk around with cameras and a uh, earpiece that was that is GPT telling them what people's emotions are, what they're feeling, but yeah, it sounds useful, uh, <laughs> but yeah. yeah. Or I can imagine it being a version of the Cyrano de Borges. Uh, oh, where, de Bergerac. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Where chat GPT is detecting the emotion in, on your date and whispering in your ear, like where you're going, <laughs> if you're going wrong or right here. Yeah. Yeah, that would be really weird. Uh, I think the... and then to take it one step further, the, for countermeasures, people start using their LFVNs to meet each other first, and then they duke it out first. And if they get along, I think I mentioned this in a previous episode somewhere. You did, right? yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. That I guess that's another path there where <laughs> where people can do that. Yeah, I wonder how much data or how, how much value chat GPT can get just out, out of video before we start needing to feed it more and more things that don't mm. already exist yet. I feel like video is such a vast ocean that it requires so much compute in order to ingest, let's say the entire YouTube corpus that that is sufficient. That's the last final frontier. I can't well, imagine going beyond that. 128k is should be ought to be enough for anybody, <laughs> right? So, I mean, yeah, I I think one of the uh, articles we mentioned earlier in this episode is about the bitter pill for machine learning, and that you should always bet on uh, using a dumb model and for the machine learning, and then just bank on compute and to increase by orders of magnitude. And so the two pillars would be just search and learning for improvement of your models. So if that's the case, maybe we'd run out of video or it would ingest as much video as humans are able to produce in real time. Yeah, that would be insane if it's able to do that. But yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, I, think- I, I get your point. Yeah, I, I think that at that point, having watched basically humans and other things in every possible setting imaginable, which is what you would get if you watched every video on YouTube, yeah, GPT would know so much about the world. And then you start needing to feed it all kinds of other weird sensor data that is beyond human perception so yeah, that it can perceive yeah. things that we don't even know. Yeah, I, I think that's an interesting idea because there's a, the world around us is more than what hum, we humans can perceive. And we're starting just starting to understand that by studying the animals around us, right? Like the oatmeal talked about the mantis shrimp and how it sees in like this expanded wavelength uh, in the like beyond the visible spectrum. And when you look at birds some of them look really brown and dull to us but that's because we can't see in the ultraviolet but when you like uh map the ultraviolet colors 
of a bird down to the visible spectrum, they're actually quite colorful. Um, hmm. And so there might be these sort of things that we can't perceive that we can feed into these large language models so that they can start recognizing the patterns. And I guess potentially my favorite use case is talk to dolphins, but I mean, <laughs> <laughs> yes, but uh, I mean, like be, be, but all joking aside, I think there are certain things that like animals can do such as uh, be able to tell direction because they have, what do they call the magnetic detectors? Like the mm -hmm. mag magneto sensors or whatever that I guess if you hook that up so that these things can perceive it, then you should be able to generate either text describing it or videos showing you what's actually going on and be able to detect certain things um, that are going on. Like if, if the magnet is pointing in this direction, then, you know, these are the things that would happen. You could even hallucinate some of that stuff too, which I think would make for interesting viewing. Or hmm. ASMR videos, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think that is... Sounds completely crazy, but you know what? Like, if OpenAI is going to build AGI, then it seems archaic to limit the modalities that it can ingest to things that we human beings can. So mm -hmm. yeah, it, why not feed it m magnet data or the, uh, I don't know, the emotion of the oceans or, or, or the weather system or something such that it's able to help us with like climate change in ways that we don't necessarily perceive because we are humans who are building models to understand these complex systems but maybe we could just feed those as sort of sensors into the AI and it helps us make sense of those. Yeah. This, this also reminds me of how Star Trek downloads archives of entire civilizations <laughs> onto their ships and stuff. And eventually if you watch all the YouTube videos on earth, that's kind of effectively what it is. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, if going back to the alien species analogy, yeah. that's what an alien species would do to understand humans. They would watch uh, every YouTube video on earth and they would have a pretty good understanding of how people behave and what the mm. things around them are. Yeah. Yeah. I think you could probably go pretty far in that direction too. And I guess in some ways it's an archive for people. Like if, if the language model, it's like, it's basically a compression. It's large, but it's a compression. So it should be an archive for archaeologists to query. Like they can just ask. Yeah. Really, like what happened back then or why was it? Of course, I guess you have to deal with hallucinations, but presumably we'll solve that problem. You know how when they sent out one of these space probes into deep space it must be voyager or something they made a golden uh record 
that had some inscriptions uh, as well as some recordings of Mm -hmm. all the things uh, that are not all a sampling of things that are representative of human culture, such that if aliens ever found that probe, yeah, yeah, they would understand what humans were. Right. right? Uh, I wonder if the if you sent a copy of GPT out uh, onto a space probe that had watched every YouTube video on Earth and read every uh, every web page on Earth, whether that could be the modern alternative. I don't know how the aliens would be able to decode the model such that they're actually able to run it on their alien systems, but yeah. that would be really interesting because that's the entirety of humanity, basically. Yeah, I mean, Contact, uh, that movie should have been that way instead of like giving plans for humans to travel to interstellar space, space to meet them. I think aliens might just send like a chat bot that could be a possibility, <laughs> right? So you can yeah. just ask it questions, and then, and then I guess if you want to learn more, you just send it back. But but like, I guess you could conceivably do that as a way to explore space with intelligent beings. It's it's a way to collect information. So because it's easier to beam beam bits than atoms, and so. Yeah, if you could have the other alien intelligent species build the receptacle for these things, then maybe, maybe that's possible. Yeah, that's you'd need to somehow solve. You'd need to solve some type of runtime. Like you can't just yeah. take these model weights and then right, expect right. that yeah. alien GPUs run the same way that we right. do. Yeah. Um, but actually, I'll make this plug for the probably the tenth time in this series. Uh, <laughs> Alan Kay is interested in this very problem. And, oh yeah, uh, and he is. Uh, he has an HN post in which he was talking about how alien and human contact might work, such that we're able to establish a shared understanding of wh- what is a number, how do we represent them, and then onward and upward into higher abstractions. And so, yeah. if he manages to solve that problem, and then uh, OpenAI manages to dump all the GPT weights onto some stable medium we could send those into space and then give uh aliens a chatbot yeah huh i, I think we're <laughs> well well into the terri- of, territory of pontification I'm, I'm sorry i led us there honestly but <laughs> but like I, I think yeah i don't know maybe, maybe we should stick to things that are more near term with earth because i i think i think it's just reminded I think things tend to expand when you start talking about aliens and stuff. But then I guess floating <laughs> yeah. it floating it back back here, like what are like we, we talked about like sensors. Uh like like uh sensor networks or like uh sensor data and having it do that or um other types of input. I can see that as valuable data for the financial industry because there are some investment firms that use non-traditional data to make their investments. And so maybe there is alpha to be gained that is not nearly as visible. So for example, I've heard, mm-hmm. so the story goes, like you, they wanted to know whether they should make an invest in, investment in some retail chain. And so they took satellite 
images of their parking lots and counted the number of cars over time to get an estimate as to how much foot traffic and then potentially how much revenue that they were making. And so that's kind of like a creative way to gather data that is in public. Um, and so you could conceivably have uh, data, either it's made metadata on the internet already, or just some sort of like public sensor data that you wouldn't think would be correlated with some industry that might be, uh, might give you an alpha in your investments. Like I, I can see that yeah. more readily in something like the oil industry or like things that are in the commodities rather than say like Google or something where it's all digital. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Uh, I think this class of data could be used for a variety of complex systems, whether that's modeling climate, uh, modeling uh, some different like physics, I'm sure it could be useful as an assistant to interpret sensors that are coming off of, I don't know, like the Large Hadron Collider or something like this, uh, as well as, yeah, financial modeling as well. So, so then would it be out of character? And maybe like because it's like we talked about this in a previous episode before that when there's no constraints on a technology, like anything could happen and we're just well into the territory of just making stuff up. So then like maybe yeah. what makes more sense is like what what it, what would be the limitations? Like what wouldn't be, we be able to do with these large language models? I mean, I think the question is easier in the near term, but then even in the yeah. far term, like let's say 20 years from now, I don't know. Like, do you, do you see there yeah, has I mean, to like, be limitations somewhere? Like, there's no way that this scales in, infinitely. Yeah, I think that the limitation is probably in the fact that these models would need to be trained by humans. Like, at some point, the gains that AlphaGo made were through self-play, mm -hmm. which you mentioned uh, earlier, which is yeah. basically the idea that it, through some uh, framework, the AI plays itself and learns from its own mistakes and iterates better. It, and that allowed AlphaGo to achieve superhuman uh, uh, capabilities because it not only ingested human level playing data, but then was able to play against itself and then learn things that it wasn't able to observe in the uh, human play training mm -hmm. data. Yeah. And so, yeah, I think the limitations are probably in that if you train these LLMs so far, we've been training them in ways that we understand uh, and getting it up to speed on human level tasks. At some point when it you've basically saturated that and you're reaching some asymptote, then in order to break out of the asymptote, you need to do things that are beyond we you need to give it basically self play such that it can surpass us now this is a little bit more grounded than all of this talk of aliens in that I think that's a <laughs> that's a yeah. realistic possibility, and that's a potentially a realistic uh, solution to that asymptotic problem. But I don't know if anybody has applied self-play yet to training LLMs. 
Oh, really? Hmm. I think I saw like one research paper about it just sort of theoretically, but I think that at least uh, in any big LLM that's being deployed so far, there's just not any need to do that yet. So it might be a while yet before people start to really explore that in, in earnest. But um, yeah, I think that's probably the limitation is it, it, to do all these things at, at a certain point, you need to expand beyond just the whatever you can cook up with your mind. Like, oh, well, let's gather this data. Let's gather that data and feed it in, into this model. So at some point, like yeah. then, then our original line of inquiry is very relevant to this question. Like what happens after we run up text or good text? then we have to find people to write obscure text. And I guess that's what Wikipedia does. You have a mm -hmm. whole bunch of people writing on obscure topics and now maybe there would be some financial gain for them. Maybe I'll be a small amount. I don't know. We'll see. And then, yeah. and then potentially moving to other mediums such as images and video and audio for, I guess, audio books and music and yeah. then beyond that, we were talking about like sensor data or like geospatial data or like whatever other data that's being gathered, like weather data. And then I guess then finally, but then I suspect like once we run through, we'll run through it faster at the end than in the beginning. So like in the beginning, it'll seem like there's so much data to run through. We'll never get through it. But as compute gets faster and faster, we figure out how to make these systems more efficient will run out of data quickly and quickly. And so until maybe, yeah, you get to the point where these things can analyze in real time all the data that's being produced. So it like yeah, it's caught up. Yeah, you insane compute it, for that, but yeah, yeah. Yeah, you need insane compute. I mean, like maybe, maybe there's not enough sand on earth to do that. I, I don't know. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. But, but I mean, I don't know, like when, when the Apollo missions happened, I don't think they can imagine the computers that you and I are using for this frivolous talk. So, I mean, maybe yeah, I, I'm not putting it out of the bounds of possible, out of the realm of possibility, I guess. So, yeah, there, there, and yeah, there, there has to be some limit. Like maybe we run out of energy. That I, I do think that that's, that's feasible that uh, the cost of energy, the cost of compute all of those things are going to be the actual scaling limitations in order to get uh, get GPT to understand more and more of this training data, which is mm -hmm. probably motivation that would feed back into why OpenAI would need to um, monetize in some intermediate term because how I are they going to pay for all this stuff? Yeah, I thought you were going to say that that's why they are going to work on Fusion so that they... <laughs> Increase the ceiling uh, and bounce for that. And then I guess, I don't know, it, it, that seems like more readable, readily way to make money also. But I don't, I don't know. Uh, like, yeah. it's, it's, it's hard for us to say because like you and I don't know the actual like tr the numbers, like, but we, we can see the basic trends, but we don't know the hard numbers. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty hard. There's all speculation, but I guess that's the point of this. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, <laughs> we should just call it like pulling it out of our ass uh, part of the podcast. But uh, <laughs> only hardcore fans would know this because I don't. 
uh, only yeah, five people... of you are left uh, <laughs> at this <laughs> part of the but podcast. we project out like five to ten years when people come back and revisit that so there's going to be more than five i guarantee you <laughs> yeah right yeah so so yeah i don't know are, are there other things that you think are would be worth talking about uh as as these things like grow more pervasive and popular i think like our speculations about any particular industry would be kind of shallow in the sense that oh it's going to get decimated in a variety of yeah. ways i think a more interesting thing is how will people adapt oh like that, that's one thing that uh we would move on to the next section which is like the how, how can how can we take a position on this if if you actually believe it? And so swinging back to what we put a pin on, like, yeah, where should people go to? Like, how how would people take a position on this if if they believe the things that we are talking about, not just what it is, what it can do today, and the effects that it'll have on people and society as a whole. Yeah, I think there are oh, a lot of people. Question. Uh, question. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think this is something I think a lot about as well. Uh, but one very insightful comment that I got from one of the engineers who was working at OpenAI at some event was basically build something that will get better, build a product or a company or whatever that gets better when GPT gets smarter and smarter. Don't build something which becomes obviated when GPT gets smarter and smarter. And I think like mm. that is very tactical advice. Uh, and I, but I think it makes sense because when we were talking about the case of copywriting or basically companies mm -hmm. that were built upon coming up with a very clever prompt. Well, it turns out that prompt engineering is just this weird local uh, minimax that we're in, or oh, I guess minimum. a maximum, I guess, yeah. whatever, which, whichever way you Whichever way you, yeah. <laughs> but uh, basically we're, we're in this uh, current phase of development where prompts are necessary, but mm -hmm. as things get smarter and smarter, you probably need less and less fine-grained, clever prompting because it just understands your intent. And so if you're building things on top of a GPT and these LLMs with the assumption that things are just going to be just as hard as they are now and you're the one company who's come up with the cleverest prompt, you're probably screwed. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think if you... I don't know. I almost feel like people should build really, really naive things Assuming that uh, GPT is very, very clever, and then just keep them in your back pocket until such a time as GPT becomes a little bit better and see if they work now. I actually had this experience myself. I had been trying to apply GPT towards a, a particular uh, problem, and it didn't work for months. And then they released a new revision of GPT-3 called mm -hmm. uh, GPT-003. Okay. And uh, it was like da text DaVinci-003, whatever mm -hmm. it is. It was this minor yeah, yeah. revision to GPT. Right. And whatever I tried before immediately just worked. And so I think that 
like extrapolating from that, I think that people right now are currently using ChatGPT and, and GPT-3 and pushing it to its current limits. But I think that to take a position on it, you almost have to try to make it do things that stump it and then just keep them in your back pocket and sit on them and see if they work all of a, all of a sudden a few months from now or a year from now. But then, but then you have to, that's still a little bit different than a task that would be better and better as GPT gets better and better. Wouldn't it? Because like if you yeah. put the goalpost somewhere and it doesn't work today, but then it exceeds it tomorrow, you're just uh, you're just roadkill later on. But so do you mean <laughs> yeah, something yeah. something a little bit different? Where I, I get what you're saying. So so yeah. to back up, I understand your point. Like, look ahead. Don't don't think that this yeah, is move. the end state of yeah. of where these LLMs are going to be at because like people talk about what it's good at, what it's not good at, but like that current capability is a near term thing. It's not going to be a a, a far term thing as, as far as we can right. tell, and so that's what you're getting at. But then it's not quite aligned with the advice that you were given, right? Like so, what would be yeah. an example where it gets better and better? Yeah, I guess it's I think... the equivalent of like say in web two, you want something where like it's single player, but then it gets better and better where when you feed more people into it. And so I think I guess like social media was that where yeah. like the more people that you dumped into this thing, like the crazier and the better that it got for everybody. Yeah, something like that. Basically, I mean people use all kinds of buzzwordy things, moats and flywheels and mm -hmm. things like that. But there's a really yeah. good article that somebody wrote, we'll put it in the show notes, dissecting how Copilot works. Copilot being the AI oh, uh, code yeah. assistance thing. Mm -hmm. And they, they sort of looked at the uh, Visual Studio code extension and, and uh, the API calls that it was making and whatnot. And mm -hmm. they got a sense of how it worked. And basically, I think that's one of those use cases that gets better and better, assuming the underlying model gets better because what they had done was Copilot works by taking into account all this local context in your code base and, and, and all of this, and it does a passable job now. Uh, but basically as the underlying model gets better, their product gets an immediate boost because all of the stuff that they have, all of the con local context that they have, either uh, you don't need to give it so much local context anymore because the model can just infer it, infer your intent, and then now your engineering team has to work less hard, or you can still feed it that local context and the model can do more and more with it. So basically that's a product in which they're not necessarily relying on the current capabilities of the model and just sort of building a thin layer on top. What mm -hmm. they're doing is they're using the model kind of like a microprocessor and they're benefiting from Moore's law because they're building software yeah. on top of it, which gets basically faster. They get capability upgrades when their core gets upgraded. I mean, I think even in the AI copywriting case, one way to move past the 
state where you're just a company with a fancy prompt is to, I don't know, feed the, what do you call the engagement rates or the click-through rates or whatever Mm -hmm. on your ad copy back into the model somehow. Right. And then use the model to improve. And I guess, yeah. How can you improve the model? Does that go back into open API or open AIs like API or something, or you would have to like make a better prompt as a result so that you capture that value for yourself? Yeah, that's probably, there There are two ways that people are going about it, which I see. One is that some companies are building platforms in which you can A-B test your prompts for the same task and mm. then refine your prompts this way. But I think that a more realistic and sustainable solution is that OpenAI might release some way in which you can... Uh, May do like RLHF, like reinforcement learning, but not maybe not from human feedback, but from tool feedback mm-hmm. where you or task feedback. So for an AI copywriter, the feedback is the success or failure of the ads that it writes. And if you feed that back through reinfor- reinforcement learning, then it learns the tricks that it needs in order to write but- better and better. Does that mean that you need to retrain the entire model with the reinforcement stuff? No, I th- well, so I, that's not what uh, OpenAI did with uh, RLHF. They just added that. They added that as a last uh, training step on top of the existing GPT in order to basically give it guardrails or give it guidelines on how to behave when interacting with humans. But, right, but you could that- do that for some other stuff. That uh, RL, the the reinforcement learning isn't using prompts for that, right? Like it's it's something that they had to do once. It's not like so. It's not like a one shot sort of thing. Uh, yeah, right. Like I'm not where, sure where they're using the oh well, basically like it, it, they're not using like the the prompt aspect of the LLVM to, to train the reinforcement stuff, right? No. There's just, the, yeah, yeah, the feedback yeah, yeah. is just, I liked it, I didn't like it. Right, right, right. And so that has to be part of the entire kind of the, the training session for it. And so it's it's something that they like have a cutoff for. It's not like it's infinitely, it's it's not it's not learning in real time. And so oh, therefore, oh, I see. Yeah. Like, is it continuously learning? I don't probably I not don't think so. Like that, but... that's its own host of problems. And so because they can train it once and then put it out there and people can adjust it however they need to based on the prompts. Right. And so that's what we call the one shot stuff. Right. Yeah. 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 I see yeah, what yeah. you're saying. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know. But I, again, like the, I think for now, probably people are just going to have to use their feedback they're getting in order to refine their prompts. Uh, but mm-hmm. probably in the near future, I, I don't imagine that GPT will have the same abstraction and the same set of capabilities that, that OpenAI exposes to you in perpetuity, mm-hmm. right? I think they're yeah. going to add more and more things. And so, yeah, if they if they add some reinforcement learning layer where you have your task-specific version of GPT, which uh, gets reinforcement learning feedback, then that's a sort of flywheel where it gets better and better as you use it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, that's, I guess that's a typical, as 
Silicon Valley playbook and adapted to AI. But I mean, feedback loops are powerful and that's why people employ them. So yeah, I mean, I think that's probably good advice. So got anything else for us? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I mean, I think if I had a solid answer on how to take a position on, on this, I would, uh, I would be going and doing that. And right, not really like going on chatting. Right, 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 <laughs> right. But yeah. in in all interest, like this is this is our our, I guess, latest thought on it. Yeah, but yeah, it's a it's a hard problem. So uh, no guarantees here. So I, I think I don't know. Like, do you, you have anything else when it comes to the position? I guess near term, like. Uh, if you're an engineer, probably work at companies that are doing this or at least familiarize with yourself with how they'll help you write code. Um, and then for people that are just using it, like figure out how to uh, use it for your own benefit, because I, I don't think human jobs are going away anytime soon. You still need humans in the loop. Uh, but the sooner that you figure this out, the better, I think. Because the stuff is coming. Yeah. And I think that, you know, if you're in a position where you're starting a company or any type of endeavor, uh, nonprofit or, or anything soon, one advantage that you might have over incumbents is that incumbent companies and organizations have probably already scaled up their staff of uh, employees human employees and that comes with its own disadvantages. Whereas now maybe you're not going to be a solo founder unicorn, like I predicted, Mm -hmm. but at least one advantage you can have operationally is staying lean and, uh, you know, giving whatever staff you have incredible leverage through these uh, AI powered tools. And so, well, we first need to incentivize managers not to think that headcount is is a measure of status or, or anything. Well, like yeah. That. So, so the, the, that that's that's the disease of the incumbents, right? <laughs> if you're starting a company now, then uh-huh. you can av- avert this problem entirely by just simply not hiring so many people, such mm-hmm. that they build little fiefdoms within your company, right? right you just right. keep your company to like ten people and see how far you can push that before you need yeah. to hire the 11th person. Yeah, maybe we'll be able to build uh, companies with 10 to 12 people like that are beyond a messaging app and a photo sharing social media app. Because <laughs> right. I, I mean, there there are industries in which like you need a lot of um, people for ver- variety of reasons, whether it's regulations or the there's a lot of handholding with humans and stuff like that. So maybe, yeah. yeah, account reps. Maybe maybe every company will finally get good customer support. Comcast. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I think that's over for too much. <laughs> so this has been a very, very long discussion. I think this is going to be our longest episode yet. And that is probably an indication that we're really, really optimistic about this. What do you think? Uh, yeah, I, I think there's just definitely a lot to say. Uh, there's a lot of unknowns, unknown unknowns and known unknowns. And so I think that's why there's 
a lot to say about it but i think as we figure this stuff out like it'll narrow our focus and so we'll start to figure out exactly how far these things can scale what are the limits of their capabilities how much of society will they actually affect and can affect and um how it'll change the way that you work live and play which is a lot of stuff right so so hopefully yep. we find ways to do the transition in a positive way and in the worst case it's going to be seismic shifts that i don't know a lot of people suffer through but hopefully that that it won't come to that because we tried to think it out beforehand and avoid the worst consequences of that so so yeah yeah i mean i think that's a good point usually we end these episodes saying that our optimism and enthusiasm is out of this world but right. i think that in this case this is probably one of the rare instances where it's so easy to fly into outer space with optimism for this thing that probably the sensible thing to do is cultivate rationality or cultivate, yeah, cultivate an intuition of like where the limits of this thing is yeah. because like we said when you have no constraints then you might as well just be writing fiction right and so or yes. science fiction um but here i think yeah like knowing the shape of its limitations and like how it works probably gets you a long way into positioning yourself for this sort of future yeah exactly so okay that's interesting this is a special episode because we changed our our tune uh in this one so (laughs) (laughs) um but yeah, if this episode was interesting to you and it opened your eyes, check out our other episodes where we talk about the other edges of the technology, why they're interesting, and what the future holds. Uh, check them out and subscribe. Subscribe to our channel. Yes, like please. this video. <laughs> Tell <laughs> your friends. Tell your yes. family. <laughs> <laughs> Tell everyone you know. And uh, also check out uh, our audio versions on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and write us a review. It will really help bring other tech pianistas on board. That's uh, right. Yeah. So with that, this is Shree. And this is Will. And we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. <laughs>